Well, a very, very good morning to you all, and welcome to Banker Christian Fellowship Church on this, the 25th of September, 2022. Um, whether you're a regular or a visitor, whether you're in the church here or listening in online, we do hope you enjoy the service this morning and this opportunity of worshipping God together. We're going to sing and pray hymns together. We're going to read his word and um, in these turbulent times, uh, the, the end of the Elizabethan era and the start of the reign of King Charles III and a new prime minister, we've got a change of government, a change of, well, a change of government, a change of prime minister, change of authority. Um, and these times can be quite challenging. And today, Duncan's going to be talking from Ecclesiastes 8 and talking about the complexities of life and how we might be wise. From Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil, 
through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Thank you, and let me uh, add a welcome to Adrian's. It's lovely to have you with us, and keep Ecclesiastes 8 open in front of you, if you can. I don't think that you can ever be fully prepared, can you, for, for how complicated life can be. There is a wonderful, uh, blissful ignorance to childhood, or, or, or at least there should be, uh, an ignorance that is oblivious to just some of the situations adults have to contend with. Uh, when, when should we change that car? When do I discipline and when do I show grace? Should I confront that friend about the thing she said or should I just forget about it? Is this thing severe enough for me to phone 111 or will it all be cleared up in the morning? Should I settle in this church or should I be somewhere else? Should I speak to my boss about his inappropriate joking or should I just let it go? Life is complicated. There's no definitive source that we go to that gives us all of the answers to these complicated questions. We constantly find ourselves living in, in shades of grey, having to exercise our best judgment. And our passage today is one that recognizes that. This book of the Bible is entirely realistic about the complexities of life. Ecclesiastes is the diary of someone who likes to be known as the preacher, and in his diary he's recorded lots of things that he has seen, that he's experienced, things that he's learned, as he has tried to find out what life is all about. And from the very first chapter, he concluded that life is vanity or meaningless. It's a word that appears more than once in today's chapter. And it doesn't, strictly speaking, mean meaningless in the way that we would use that word. It's the word for vapor. His conclusion about life is that life is here only for a short while, like a vapor. It cannot be grasped hold of, and when it's gone, it disappears without a trace. The preacher has found this to be the unchangeable rule of life under the sun. It doesn't matter if you give your life to money, to career, to physical pleasure, to the arts. It will not change this fact that life is short and is quickly forgotten. And he's been showing us that we're not in control of our lives. But in fact, all things are from God who is in control of everything. 
and to spend life trying to alter the things that God has decreed is, is foolish. It's a waste of life. Far better, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, to enjoy the gifts that God has given by receiving them with gratitude and sharing them with others. The preacher has a lot to wrestle with, though, because, well, as we're thinking about, life is not straightforward. There is oppression and injustice in the world. It seems that often bad people do better than good people, and it causes the preacher and it causes us to be perplexed. He's realistic about the world we inhabit. He's not, uh, he's not an idealist. He's not a blind optimist. He speaks about life as it really is. And he tells us that we're going to need something if we're going to navigate life successfully. And you see that in verse 1. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Here in chapter 8, we're being told, be wise, because life is complicated. Be wise, life is complicated. And immediately, he places us into a difficult situation. He sets us in the court of the king. Now, the authority of the monarch in the United Kingdom today is very different from the sort of authority wielded by a monarch in the ancient Near East 3,000 years ago when this book was written. But the same principle is at play. Imagine you find yourself in the civil service, in the court of a government minister. It can be complicated because we know, don't we, that kings and governments, well, they don't always see things as we see them. They make bad decisions. They even make immoral decisions. They send people to war when they shouldn't. They misuse public money. They act selfishly when they're supposed to act in the best interests of the people. And so faced with that, what do you do? Bless you. Perhaps the idealist would say, you must stand up to the king. You must make your dissatisfaction known to the king any time that he does something wrong. And in fact, any time he does something you disagree with, don't stand for it. Walk out on him if needs be. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes 8 says life is much more complicated than that, friends. It requires wisdom. And he gives a general stance that he thinks we should hold. You see this in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. The word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? The preacher is saying, human authority is imperfect. But it's a gift from God, so submit. Let me say that again. He's saying human authority is imperfect, but it's a gift of God, so submit. The general disposition towards authority should be one of submission. 
And this is not simply because it makes life easier, but he says because of God's oath to the king. The wise understand that God has put kings and governments in place. This point is picked up again elsewhere in the Bible, particularly when Paul would urge the Roman Christians to, and I quote, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And I almost think it's important to remember that when Paul wrote those words, he was encouraging Christians to be submission to a governing authority, the head of which was Emperor Nero, a deeply immoral man who became a great persecutor of Christians. You see, Paul understood what the preacher in Ecclesiastes understood, that in fact, as hard as it can be for us to believe, bad government is better than no government. Anarchy is the worst of all worlds. And necessarily, human government will be flawed, often deeply, deeply flawed. This is what happens, as he puts it in verse 9, when man has power over man to his heart. So wisdom is needed. Now, sometimes the authorities will order you to do something that you don't want to do, something you don't think you should have to do. Well, the preacher says, obey. The evil cause that he mentions in verse 2, in verse 3, sorry, do not take your stand in an evil cause, seems to be the cause of trying to oppose the king. The concern the preacher has is that the unwise might simply throw their life away in an idealistic but foolish stand against the king who does whatever he pleases, whose word is supreme. That posture of submission, he tells us in verse 5, means that the wise will know no evil thing. In other words, no harm will come to them. But it's complicated because there is a time to resist a time to oppose, a time to disobey. And we need to know, as, as it's put in our passage here, the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For most adults, telling the time is second nature. You look at the clock face, and almost without thinking, you register what time it is. Now, in recent years in our house, we've had to give it some more thought. How do you teach a child how to tell the time? I mean, you assume it's easy because you've been doing it almost all your life. But just think about it. You need to communicate that the numbers on the clock face are directly applicable to the hour hand. But when it comes to interpreting the minute hand, the numbers on the clock face each need to be multiplied by five. And when the minute hand goes beyond six, we actually deduct the number of minutes from the hour that is yet to come. And that's how we express the time. But don't get too bogged down in that because in general, we'll round it up or down to the nearest five minutes. 
How did we ever learn this thing? How did we ever learn it? Telling the time is complicated. And that's exactly what the preacher is saying. Telling the time is complicated. The complication is we don't know what will be today or tomorrow. The times and the seasons are not in our control. And so what do we need? We need wisdom. And so there are times the early Christians were faced with a difficult relationship with the ruling authorities. But in the midst of that, they gave us valuable wisdom in how to navigate this side of life. When the authorities had forbidden the apostles to teach in the name of Jesus, well, the apostles answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What principle are they outlining there? They're saying there is no king, there is no government who has the right to order someone to disobey God. The wise will submit to God first, even if that means offending the king, even if that means trouble. And so if laws are passed that forbid us from sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, if laws are passed that even force us to say that two plus two equals five, if laws are passed that tell us that we must kill an innocent human being, then wisdom will dictate that we disobey the king's command. But if you think that taxes are set too high or that the government misspends your money and so we're not going to pay them taxes anymore, I'm afraid that's not quite a high enough threshold for civil disobedience because the government has the right to set taxes, but it does not have the right to tell you to disobey God. So many other matters would fall into the the category of, actually, it's quite hard to tell the time here. The call for those who are God's people is to honor and submit to those who are in authority over them, to recognize that it's God who has put them in place and to pray for them. And when Paul urges Christians to pray for authorities, he says, pray that we might have a quiet and peaceable life. Because it's hard to tell the time, this is why we must bear with one another in these sorts of things. It's harder to tell the time than you think. There is a time to resist, but there is a time to submit. And it is always a time to pray for wisdom to know the difference. The preacher, however, has found something to help him tell the time. And it was to consider the most significant stamp on any of our lives. Look at verse 10. There seems to be a a change in perspective comes in verse 10. And it was when I saw the wicked buried. The preacher has taken us here before in Ecclesiastes to a graveside because he's convinced that a graveside offers the clearest perspective on life. A graveside offers the clearest perspective on life. What impact does it have on him here? Well, as we all do at a graveside, he remembers the one who was buried. 
He thinks of them. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, such wicked things. But now they're gone. And so he wonders, why do people do evil things? Verse 11, he works it out. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, it's because the wicked seem to get away with it. If there's no consequences, then why not pursue some wicked scheme if it's going to mean that you will prosper? They do evil a hundred times and prolong their life. There seems to be no consequences. This same sort of analysis is done in one of the Psalms, in Psalm 73. It was written by a man called Asaph. And he tells us how he had a spell in life, we don't know how long it lasted for, where he he describes this. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It's almost the same as the preacher in Ecclesiastes 8. When Asaph, who had been envious of these wicked people who seemed to prosper, and here was him doing his best to have an upright life before God, and he didn't seem to be getting anywhere, he was envious. But then he stood at their graveside, and everything fell into place. Now, the preacher usually tells us in Ecclesiastes what he sees, and often he struggles to make sense of what he sees. But here in verse 12 is one of these occasions where he tells us something he knows, not just something he sees, something he knows. He says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Well, how can he be so sure? It's because he knows what God is like. And instinctively, I would argue that we all have this sense within us. It's this sense that justice must be done. Frequently, people will raise the objection against belief in God that there is, if, if there is an all-powerful God who is love, then why doesn't he intervene? Why does great wickedness? Why is it allowed to go on? Why uh, do innocent people suffer? And I think that instinct is actually a good one, to say that there is some, something's out of place here. If this is who God is, then why is the world as it is? Well, the preacher is telling us here, if that's the question we're asking, it's a good one. He's saying, however, 
you're trying to finish the story too soon. You're viewing these things like one who is short-sighted. Yes, of course, it is scandalous that someone could give themselves to wickedness and live a life that is wealthier than yours, longer than yours, more comfortable than yours. You see, the preacher knows that there is a God in heaven and that he is the Holy One of Israel, the one committed to perfect justice, and that this God could surely never allow this sort of scandalous injustice to stand. And so he says, he knows that it will not be well with the wicked. How could it possibly be that God could allow it to be well with the wicked? The preacher is confident that there is such a thing as judgment at the hand of God. Even standing at the graveside of a wicked man who had been praised in the city for all that he had done, yet the preacher is still confident that even though he's now in his grave, it will not be well for the one who does not fear God. God will not allow wickedness to stand. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? The Robert Mugabe's of this world, the Joseph Stalin's of this world, they have not escaped the judgment of God. They have not escaped accountability for their wickednesses. But in fact, the closer we look at our own hearts, we have to ask, what, what should we expect from God? The preacher says that it will go well for those who fear God and not well for those who do not fear God. And it's a prominent phrase in the Bible to fear God. And it, it does not mean living in abject terror at who God is. That's, that's not what it means. To fear God is to recognize who he is, to revere him, and to submit to him, to live a life of worship to him. Now, this is where life is a bit more complicated, isn't it? It is easy to spot the blatant liars, the violent, the fraudsters, the murderers. We know which bracket they fall in. They're evil, right? But see, the preacher here says that the standard is those who fear God. Those who fear God. And suppose I have to ask then, is that the characteristic of my life? I mean, maybe from the outside it could appear that it is. But let's look closer. Not just at my life, yours. Let's look into our hearts. Let's examine the thoughts in my head. Let's examine the motives behind all my actions. Have I lived and am I living really in the fear of God? I confess often I'm in the fear of other people far more than in the fear of him. Well, the Bible was written to help us see this clearly. 
And the Apostle Paul, in showing us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he lists what humanity is like. Here's some, here's some selected highlights. He says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so for every one of us here today, whether life is going well for you or not, whether you're in good health or not, whether the world thinks you're a success or not, none of these things is a reliable marker of what kind of life you have lived before God. And I don't think you can miss that in, say, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and wicked to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He, he can't piece these things together. Why is it that people who are wicked end up prospering in some way and people who seem to be good, they don't? Because these things are not reliable markers of where you stand with God. No, that will be revealed on the day when people stand around your graveside. And on our own, there is not one of us who could escape God's judgment. This need that the preacher knows, this need for a life that has been lived in the fear of God, praise God, that is what God has provided for us. God's Son became a human being and lived a life of perfect obedience to God, a life that feared the Lord's. He gave up that perfect life to die on a cross, suffering the penalty of judgment that those who've lived disobedient lives deserve. Through this death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, all who come to him in faith, believing that Jesus Christ did all this for them, they are so joined to Jesus that his death becomes your death, his resurrection, your resurrection, and his life of obedience, your life of obedience. And so the certainty the preacher had about God's judgment is something we can have even greater clarity on than even he had, because we know that we will all stand before God, and either we will stand there on our own record, and we will be damned or we will stand there on the record of Jesus Christ to whom we belong and we shall live. And so if I return to one of the burning questions that we left, why then is God's judgment so slow? Why doesn't he intervene more obviously in the world to prevent wickedness and injustice and innocent suffering? The Apostle Peter helps us. Many in Peter's day were wondering a similar thing. Uh, Jesus had died, been raised, returned to heaven, and with eager anticipation, Christians were saying, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back and he will rule and he will judge. But people looking on as the years trundled by would say, well, where is he? Where is he? Why doesn't he come? 
Here's how Peter responds. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does the Lord not strike us down whenever we sin? Well, because this is what he's like. He's patient towards you. Want to know why Jesus hasn't returned in almost 2,000 years? Because this is the scale of God's patience towards humanity, not wishing to simply come and, 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 and leave us to perish, but to call all to repentance. And I'm quite sure it's the case that some of us have been testing God's patience for quite some time. Stand with the preacher in Ecclesiastes at a graveside and see where all life goes, where it all ends up, even the wicked king that makes life so difficult for us, and believe in Jesus Christ. But what about now? What will having this... uh, marker of death, this thing that helps us to tell the time, what will it mean for life now? Two things quickly as we close. It will mean, first of all, accepting that you will not make sense of everything in life. You're not going to do that. Whether that's the seeming disconnect between good things happening to bad people that we mentioned in verse 14 or simply trying to trace out all of what God is doing in the world. I mean, this is what um, the preacher is saying in verses 16 and 17. He gave himself to, uh, how does he put it, to see the business that is done on earth, to see all the work of God. But this entry in his diary, he records that the result of that is no sleep. You'll never sleep. And you'll simply realize that you cannot find it out. I think three times he says that in those verses. You cannot find it out. And I suppose this is a call from the Word of God for us to accept that we are not God. And in particular, we're not God in the sense that we are not all-knowing. We were never designed to be all-knowing. And to spend your life anxious and stressed and restless trying to be all-knowing will be to waste your life and in fact to live a miserable life. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is wonderful. But needing to have every I dotted, every T crossed, God has not given us that kind of knowledge. So that when we see the events on a grand scale in the world, why is that happening there? What what, what could God be doing? And why has she been elected prime minister here or not elected prime minister here? Uh, What's going on? Or, Or why has this been allowed to happen in my life at this time? And we try to work out the things that God most of the time doesn't reveal. Preacher says, if we have 
that perspective on where life is going, here is what it will mean for telling the time today. It is actually knowing that you can't know everything and you won't ever know everything. And we need to accept that. But, and here's the second thing, instead of being frustrated by the limits of our knowledge and understanding, well, he gives us another way of living in verse 15. And this is actually the standout verse. It probably didn't stand out to us as we read it. But this is the standout verse because this is the positive thing. He says, I commend joy for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Instead of fretting about this thing that you don't have, this all-knowing wisdom. Be joyful in the things that you do have, the things that God has given to you. There is a joy to be found in eating and drinking and working. That might seem like a very limited existence. That might seem unambitious. Ecclesiastes is saying, just stop for a minute. What if this is the sort of existence we were made for? Not trying to escape the ordinary things, but instead receiving the ordinary things as a gift from God and finding joy in them now and every day of life. It's the existence we were made for in relationship with God, receiving his gifts and allowing them to bring us joy in his presence. Eating, drinking, working, do all to the glory of God. This is what life under the sun is all about. And in light of all the preacher has told us, we see again that actually, with a clarity the preacher didn't have, we see that those gifts will only truly be enjoyed when we've received the greatest gift that God has given us, himself. Because unless we have received Jesus Christ, we're trying to enjoy these things God gives us without knowing him, without having a relationship with him. And that is exactly what Jesus offers. He comes to remove all our sins and to give us that sure and certain standing in the presence of God, to know that even if by the end of next week someone will be standing at your graveside, we will stand before God not claiming all of the great things we've done, but saying, I trusted in the Savior that you sent. And that's enough for me. That's what it is to truly fear God, is to believe his word and to trust in the Savior whom he has sent.